In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the paths of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening. Welcome to the wonderful world of Nagarjuna, land of serpents, master of snakes and deceptions and intrigue and verbal conundrums and hoses and things like that, ropes, ropes and chains and whips and so forth. Hey, so um, tonight I thought maybe we could focus on a few of the karakas, and uh, I have with me a couple of other translations, so we can look at them in that. I have Garfield, which Chris has there. I also have Padmakara. And uh, and then um, we can look at... Uh, I, I found Jones's commentaries fairly interesting in places. Um, and I thought I would focus on uh, uh, 18, examination of the self, or... Swabhava, and um, what does he call it? He calls it examining, yeah, the self. And then uh, 24, the Four Noble Tooths. And then 26, uh, the Twelve Links, which uh, has some, these have some interesting features to them that I thought would be helpful to. Uh, Go through. Yeah, that one surprised me actually. The twelve lengths. Yeah, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and that's twenty-six. So starting with the self on. Uh, so looking at his root verse translation, he being Jones's root uh, translation of Nagarjuna's root verse on page seventeen, eight, uh, Karika eighteen, we have the self. If the self were the aggregates making up a person, the material form and the mental components, it would be subject to arising and ceasing, i.e. the self would be subject to arising and ceasing. Since the aggregates are, if the self were other than these aggregates, it would not have the characteristics of the aggregates. When the self does not exist, how can there be anything belonging to the self? Such as the aggregates from the stilling of the sense of self and belonging to a self. And I think belonging to a self is getting at the idea of properties. That, that idea of a property possessor. Um, when it's free, so from the stilling of the sense of self, and belonging to a self, one is free of the ideas of mine and I. One who is free of the ideas of mine and I is not found. <laughs> In addition, one who sees someone as free of mind or free of I, 
still does not see correctly because one has seen something, a conceptual designation. When mine and I are destroyed with respect to both outer and inner phenomena, the acquisition of a new rebirth is stopped, and from the stopping of such acquisition, future births are destroyed. Who would acquire a future birth if there were no self? So, let's uh, look at uh, Garfield. Examination of Self and Entities, which is interesting that he, he translates the title that way. If the self were the aggregates, it would have a rising and ceasing as properties. If it were different from the aggregates, it would not have the characteristics of the aggregates. So I only read the first four lines, uh, Karikas, by the way, uh, stanzas of this Karika. If there were no self, where would the self's properties be? You know, so this idea that, well, accepting that, uh, okay, there is no entity, there's just properties, heat, movement, activity, things like that, but nobody possessing them. But he says, if there were no self, where would the properties be? Where would all those properties revolve to or adhere to or sort of be related or relevant to? From the pacification of the self and what belongs to it, one obtains, abstains from grasping onto I and mind. So pacification of the self and what belongs to it. Since there is no self nor what belongs to it, the pacification presumably is pacifying the ideas, the concepts. One abstains from grasping onto I and mind. One who does not grasp onto I and mind, that one does not exist. Which does not mean that there's nobody who doesn't grasp onto I and mind, but there's nobody who exists. One who does not grasp onto I and mind, that one does not perceive. That one can't do anything. When views of I and mind are extinguished, whether with respect to the internal or external, the appropriator ceases. The appropriator is, uh, uh, is a uh, takeoff on one of the early movies from the Predator series, where the Predator meets the Appropriator. <laughs> the Appropriator. <laughs> I am the Appropriator. The Appropriator, the one who appropriates births. Right? So when views of I and mine are extinguished, whether with respect to internal or external, the Appropriator ceases. There's no longer a sense of clinging, which is what appropriates births, thus having ceased births, ceases. Okay, so that's the first four. And one last one, Padmakra. Also, examination of the self and phenomena. Now they're both, these two are, are uh, translations from the Tibetan Garfield and Padmakra, and uh, Jones is a translation from the Sanskrit, so I don't have the Sanskrit handy, but uh, potentially the Sanskrit has 
a single word in the title of this karaka, such as Atman, self, and um, possibly the Tibetan has uh, self and dharmas. If the aggregates were I, this I would be the subject of both birth and of decay. If it were other than the aggregates, it would not have the character of the aggregates. If the I has no existence, how can there be such a thing as mine? When I and mine are laid to rest, there will be no more clinging to an I and a mine. Those who do not cling to I or mine are also lacking in existence. Not clinging to an I and mine, those who see this do not see. Uh, th this is a common phrase, this idea of not seeing or seeing without seeing that comes up a lot in the Mahamudra tradition, which is based in the Prasangika Madhyamaka tradition. For regarding the internal and external spheres, when thoughts of I and mind have ceased, grasping too will be arrested. Since this ceases, birth will also cease. Sorry. I have, I have the bachelor one if you want another one. You have a bachelor version? The bachelor show? How can there be a bachelor if there's no... Uh, is there like a bachelor of a barren woman? That I can't answer. <laughs> or a bachelor of a widow? <laughs> no. What would be the appropriate... Anyway, okay, the bachelor you want to hear that one? Yes, please. Self. Were mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. If I were something else, they would say nothing about me. What is mine when there is no me? Were self-centeredness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think them. What is inside is me, what is outside is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Fixations spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops fixing. I think you went to four. That's still four? I'm on four. Wow. Okay. Um, maybe he, you know, breaks things down differently. Do you want me to stop or do four? No, go for it. Sorry to interrupt. That's okay. Fixations spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops fixations. Buddhas speak of self and also teach no self and also say there's nothing which is either self or not. In the other translations, you just went through verse 6. Yeah, I think he compressed them then, somehow. Yeah, I, I just went numerically in terms of counting four verses, but uh, I, I see that, you know, he covered a little different territory. It was interesting that uh, the way he phrased it, you know, making it sort of personal, me and, me and mine, and... Um, and then he clarified internal and external, internal being I, 
an external being mine. That was helpful. So, let's look at the commentary in Jones on page 107. And he makes starts off with this, this uh, introductory comment about the difference between emptiness and selflessness. Emptiness is expands selflessness to all phenomena. All Buddhists agree that all constructed things are impermanent, subject to suffering, and their components are without a self. Those are the three marks of, ex, of, of existence. In the Buddhist ontology, a person consists of five aggregates, um, then he notes the uh, one school, however, argued that the person, which is Padgala in uh, Sanskrit, was neither the same nor different than the aggregates and is, was in some way substantive. And so these are the famous Padgala Vadans, those who profess that there is a person. And uh, in our research into sources, uh, there was some indication that supposedly Nagarjuna had uh, um, some connection with the Pudgalavadans, which I, I think one of you found something that indicated that he resonated with them, but I find that very hard to believe, <laughs> given the description here of, uh, you know, they, they basically settled on the third member of the famous Tetralemma. So the Tetralemma is the four options of uh, the way things might be. They might either be this or that or both or neither. And the Pudgalavadans say, well, they're both. Um, the person is neither the same nor different. Actually, that's the fourth option. Neither, the, neither this nor that. Uh, the third would have been both. Nagarjuna argues that even in the conventional self, sense, the self is not identical to the aggregates. Even conventionally, we, we all acknowledge that there's so many different qualities of our mind and body that are not the qualities that we attribute to a self. And, and, then, it, and then it shifts, and then at times we do attribute those qualities to ourself. We just flit about. He argues then that both aggregates and self are empty. The argument is that there is no self-existent self, but there is a conventional but empty self. If we think of a self-existent self that has properties, has properties, then there's the issue of who or what has the properties. You know, if we say, well, phenomena are just a collection of properties, then to what do they adhere and what way do they, do they belong together? Or in what way can they be said to um, act in a way that indicates some cohesion or some cohesor of them? Uh, some reality must bear the properties. But if we stop thinking in terms of self-existing entities and properties and instead think only in terms of an impermanent series of properties, this issue, this issue goes away. So there are no uh, real permanent, independent properties that have the, that beg the problem of the possessor. But all, all that we observe or can ever know are an impermanent series of characteristics, properties. One who's free of thinking in terms of mind and eye is not found. 
because there is no one and thus does not exist since there are no real entities designated as persons. And anyone who still sees in terms of eye or mind does not perceive reality correctly since that one is, is still conceptualizing experience in terms of real entities. Um, there was an interesting part in this where he cites, uh, he actually refers to a sutra from the Pali Canon in here. Where is that? No, that was a different one, I guess. In 17, he does it. Is that what you're talking about? Oh, yeah. no. The Katyayana Sutra. Oh, it's on uh, page 105, verse 7. Yeah, in, 15. Yeah, in, in uh, Karika 15. He yeah. makes a specific uh, reference to uh, a Buddhist sutra from the Pali Canon, the Discourse to Katyayana. And in that discourse, the Buddha rejects all views of exists, all exists or does not exist, and charts a middle way between them through dependent arising. So it's interesting when he, when he, that, um, just to skip around a little bit as I'm doing, um, but this, going back to 15, which is on self-existence or swabhava, which also is a very interesting one, and, uh, we should go through that as well. But um, it has the only reference to a specific Buddhist text throughout both the Karakas and all the other texts in this book. So all the other um, of the six texts on reasoning by Nagarjuna have only this one reference, specific reference to uh, Pali text, which is pretty uh, interesting. And... Uh, So, charting the middle way between all does not exist and uh, all exists, and uh, the it means the rejection of all v of the views that everything is eternal or that everything is annihilated, since whatever is destroyed could not be self-existent, since what is real is eternal and unchanging and thus is not real. So, if something is annihilated, it was not real non-existent all along. So impermanent means that things are not real, not intrinsically real. You know, and so um, the terminology that we use, that's being used here of real and not real, it begs the clarifying um, qualifier as intrinsically or truly real or not real intrinsically, um, ultimately, real or not real. Because in other contexts, the, the, uh, the majority of those who write and translate in this field have navigated towards the terminology that exists um, is on the conventional level and is the equivalent of mere appearances. 
So impermanent phenomena exist is uh, the sort of standard basis for discussion as presented in the Sautrantika tradition. And so Nagarjuna is adding the clarif the qualifier without adding it though, but he's just saying, um, he's, he's uh, constantly taking the term exists as being ultimately exists or intrinsically exists. Okay, so back to um, Karak 18. Can I ask a question that relates yeah. to terms that, since you, that actually came up in that chapter fifty, that uh, Karaka fifteen, and other places, and I realize this is something that uh, has been kind of a question for me for a while when it comes to the term this annihilationism, as and sometimes we talk about nihilism, obviously eternalism and nihilism is a commonly used phrase. And then here they're using eternalism and annihilationism. And in my mind, those are slightly different. And I realize that maybe I have been confused. In, I, I do think I've been confused in the past about what nihilism really meant. Um, I think eternalism is a little more clear, but nihilism, I tended to think of that as meaning not existing, but not with this notion of having been destroyed. There's a slight difference in my mind in those, and I just wondered if anyone else had any thoughts about that, or if you have any clarification about that, and what the, or maybe what the translation, you know, if, the, if both translations are equal from your point of view, or are they, because to me those two words are slightly different. Yeah, yeah. So this is on 105. That That's one place, and I think it shows up in some other places throughout tonight's reading, as I recall. It does, yeah. But just in this one place where we were, this is interpreted, and uh, so it's the second end of the second full paragraph on 105. This is interpreted in verses 10 to 11 to mean the rejection of the views that everything is eternal, i.e. eternalism. And it gives the Sanskrit shasvata vada, and that everything is annihilated, annihilationism, ucheda vada. So vada is those who profess or hold to or teach, and ucheda is cut off. Um, and, and to translate it either as nihilism or annihilated or annihilationism, I think is an extrapolation. Ucheda means um, that all things are, that things are cut off. And, and cut off is not, I, I don't think it, I, I think it, it, it is indeterminate in terms of its um, meaning and whether that means nihilism or annihilationism. I don't think it, it necessarily implies one or the other, but I'm not a Sanskrit scholar. Let's see, he says, whatever is destroyed could not be self-existent. 
existence, what is real is eternal and unchanging, and thus is not real. And so the implication is that uh, annihilation, with with his translation of annihilationism, is that um, there is uh, the possibility of being annihilated, and anything that has that uh, goes through annihilation or being cut off or being or ending could not be self-existent since what is real is eternal and unchanging. Yeah, I I got, I mean, that part of the logic made sense. But then to me, if you then use that same word in the tetra, the standard tetralemma of exist, doesn't exist, both and neither. To me, the annihilation is a very different meaning within that tetralemma. I mean, it's again, in my. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's go through that. So in the tetralemma, it would be eternalism or nihilism or both eternalism and nihilism or neither. And in that context, I thought nihilism meant not existing, like does not exist. But not, I never, in that context, I never thought of it in terms of, or never heard of it in terms of having been destroyed. You know, just, that's what, so I always thought the two poles were exist, doesn't exist. That's that's really a good point. That's really interesting. That that is that has come to be the implication of that dichotomy of uh, eternalism and nihilism, nihilism. But um, when when you I, I I think when you dig into how it's used in the tradition, it's like nihilism is the uh, denial of the law of karma, of cause and effect, and the four the functionality of the Four Noble Truths. And so what those are all about is the continuity of the momentum of karma. And so the nihilist or nihilist nihilist believes that the, um, the impact of one's actions cease. They have no trace, they have no momentum that continues beyond their appearance. And so that, that my understanding of, uh, of eternalism and nihilism is, is that, that um, the nihilism is believing that there's no uh, karma, that karma does not operate. And so one can, you know, what is it called? Uh, live for the day. Um, Oops, hedonists and all that. Yeah, but the French term for it, something, oh. vive le, le du jour or something. Oh, um, yeah, uh, whatever. But just you know, like live for today, and, and there's no, there's no, imp, it, it, there's no trace, there's no uh, ramifications of what you do, of your actions, they just disappear. Okay, and so that's even in the tetralemma. That's what that. Yeah, and I think okay. it gets it gets interpreted in, in the West as being the philosophical, as being equivalent to or related to the philosophical movement of nihilism in Western philosophy. What is nihilism in Western philosophy, Chris, Mister our philosophy student major? What is nihilism? Who came up with nihilism? So, so nihilism. Um, 
comes from the Latin nihil, nothing. Nihil, yeah. yes. And uh, it's basically the denial of. Uh, hmm. I, I I think it. So I think the the use of the term annihilationism is really intentional here to contrast it from this Western idea because um, it's because Nagarjuna has very often been criticized as being a nihilist, um, which I don't think is fair, but in in like a really subtle way. Um, you could say nihilism would be the denial of any sort of metaphysical existence of any kind, right? And and you you might describe Nagarjuna as holding that position, but there there's obviously some real nuances uh, that distinguish the two. Um, you know, I I, I think uh, another school of of Western philosophical thought that Nagarjuna often gets lumped into is that of skepticism, like a, a view of his contemporary in the Roman Empire, Sectus Empiricus, right, who was a really radical skeptic and would espouse that no view could be taken on anything whatsoever and would abstain from making any position at all. Um, and Nagarjuna is certainly not doing that, right? He, Nagarjuna has a very clear point of view. Um, and the difference is that he espouses a relative truth. Um, and it's a funny kind of relative truth that I don't think has any kind of place in Western philosophy because it's one that, that doesn't bottom out anywhere, that, that doesn't have medical foundation and yet still has causal efficacy. That's the, that's the beautiful nuance throughout the, the Karikas, throughout Nagarjuna's writings. Yeah, say that again. Well, that, that about it, his his relative truth, his conventional version of reality. That it that it doesn't have any metaphysical foundation, but it still has causal efficacy. Right. So there's and, no there's ultimately no chariot, but you can still get on it and go for a ride. Right. So that's what you mean by metaphysical reality or implication. Exactly. And and what distinguishes him from um, Western skeptics like David Hume, right? So David Hume arrives at kind of a similarly skeptical place. Um, but then Hume says, well, you, I, I abandon this view the second I leave my study. You know, you, you can't possibly live like this. Um, and Nagarjuna says quite the opposite. He says, you, you must live like this. You know, if it's you, the only way you can. Yeah. If you go out into the world thinking that things actually exist, then how can you possibly get anything done? Yeah, yeah. You're just like totally locked into concretizedness. But I can. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, I can understand Hume's point of view as well, though, because mm -hmm. I often, when I think about this, even if I agree with it ultimately, when I think about, you know, just in a, you know, example of, you know, engineers designing, you know, and building, you know, our transit system or railroads or doing all these things, the idea of them trying to operate in that way uh, from an ultimate point of view is hopeless. And so in that sense, it does seem like the relative, you know, in some ways, that's what it seems like Hume could be saying, you know, you, you have to leave that behind and, and deal with the conventional reality in certain ways, or else things will just fall apart and you won't be able to do anything. I, I realize that, that that's not entirely true, but I can understand his, his 
sense of that. That's that's a helpful. <laughs> and, and, and what the Darknet has that Hume doesn't is is like a like a system that has two two territories. You know, there's the ultimate ontological territory of the ultimate truth and and the relative territory of the relative truth. Hume doesn't have that. He only has one system that he has to fit everything into. So there's this sort of irreducible contradiction that he can't take outside of his study. But for Nagarjuna, it's no problem. Yeah, yeah, that idea of a unified question to ask. What's an interesting question to ask coming out of this is like, uh, to what extent can something like science exist in Nagarjuna's program? You know, where you you have very detailed explanations as to what is relatively true and what isn't, uh, or or is it all simply mere appearance? And I think in the commentarial tradition that follows from him, there you'll get kind of diverging answers to that question. But it's uh, it's not something that I think he totally resolves. It's it seems like until recently they were they were operating pretty much in the relative. But I think that it does seem like they're getting closer to some are getting closer to touching into something more close to the ultimate. But they're so materialistically oriented that I think it's hard to, you know, get out of that box. I don't really understand. Wouldn't wouldn't everything that science is all about be completely aligned with Nagarjuna's view that uh, going back to what you said earlier, that there's no metaphysical reality, and at the, and therefore there's uh, causal efficacy. That's my reading, but I I'm not sure that Chandrakirti would agree with that. Uh, but please don't push me on that any further because I can't really back it up. Because you say you think that the scientists. <laughs> You, you think that the scientists ag would agree that there's no metaphysical, there's no foundation? It depends on what physicists, scientists I think particle physicists would agree with Nagarjuna. Uh, or quantum, I think quantum physicists right. would agree. Yeah, the ones that are furthest out, you know, in that, I think they're getting, that's what I meant by saying they're getting closer to it. Like, but so, yeah, scientists have this weird way of like still believing in God, so I I, I didn't quite mean it in that way, you know. But um, I, I think it's hard that you can't that, really lump um, science into one. I yeah. think that's the I think the analogy of of physics is really helpful, right? Because we know that that like Newtonian physics and quantum mechanics like can't go together. Like we can't figure out how to make them go together, and yet. We can still use both of them at the same time, and you know, on different levels. On different levels, and there's this uh, acceptance that, like, it doesn't matter that like the billiard balls like don't make any sense on a quantum level. You can still play a game of pool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, uh, what what they don't get to is the sort of magical uh, illusion-like quality of of phenomena, because they think that that then denies causal efficacy. Yeah, I think for them it's 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 more of like a like an an explanatory gap rather than like a true, you know, ontological issue. Yeah, yeah, cuz obviously they go have lunch. <laughs> yeah, and and you and know there's, have, there's some grand unified theory that's just like forever out of reach. And they have this um concept called emergence which allows them to talk about you can talk, you can have something we talk about at the atomic le subatomic level, atomic level, cellular level, molecular level, all the way up through to just the big stuff we see. And you can sort of 
I don't fully understand how emergence works, but it aligns very nicely with um, Nagarjuna actually, where it's sort of like, don't worry about it too much. Like you can talk about the chair without having to know about every subatomic particle in the chair. You can also talk about the subatomic particles in the chair. Um, it's okay to like talk about both of those sort of separately. And, and the fact that you can't find any ultimate subatomic particle of the chair doesn't mean you can't sit down on the chair. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin. There's, there's a great um, video that I've watched uh, for the second time on the Nova series. If anyone gets PBS um, that they can stream that has the PBS uh, streaming app. Um, it's by this guy, Brian Green, and it's called uh, what is space? And um, I think it's very appropriate view uh, in this class. And it, and it um, addresses uh, lots of the issues that were just being discussed. It's, it's very good. It, it's a bit old now, maybe 10 years. But um, cool. Yeah. Cool. It, maybe you can uh, circulate that to us by okay. email. Suggest okay. that, recommend that by email. On uh, continuing on 18 in Jones's uh, commentary on it, so going to page 108, he says in the, let's see, the second full sentence, he says, but the first two options, and he's talking about the three or four options of, uh, the various options of the tetralemma, which is not really uh, necessary to go through again to get this point that I'm trying to uh, dwell upon for a minute is that he says the first two options seem to contradict each other and the third option apparently violates the law of non-contradiction and the fourth apparently violates the law of the excluded middle. So these are these uh, logical methodologies that are always cited as being uh, part of Nagarjuna's uh, apparatus and uh, if you flip really uh, quickly to page 136 in Jones emptiness the philosophy of Nagarjuna oh no I'm totally wrong where was that page <laughs> Nagarjuna's uh, argumentation, sorry, 158. Uh, second paragraph, consider two basic laws of logic, the law of the excluded middle, everything is either X or non-X. There's no third option, right? There's no middle. And the law of non-contradiction, nothing can be both x and non-x and so Nagarjuna implicitly relies on these sort of core uh, logical foundational uh, ideas okay What's interesting is that if, I mean, does he, right? Because number three seems to clearly contradict the law of non-contradiction, right? Uh, the number three of the tetralemma? The tetralemma. 
it is X and not X. Yeah. So that's that's but, really interesting. I mean, usually, it, you know, usually when he gets to three, he uses that. Usually when he gets to option three, he uses that law and says, well, nothing can be both. Yeah, I suppose so. I think, or, you know, sometimes he says, well, we already eliminated that it can can be this. And we eliminated that it can be the other thing. So how can it, how can two negatives or two non-functional things ever somehow be right by adding them together? Uh, I found the the end of this quite interesting so uh, on the bottom of that page 108 also note in verse 7 that the Garjana speaks of the nature of things dharma ta and so going back to the root verse on uh, the self back on page 18 so i skipped a few stanzas of this Let's see, let's go to 117, stanza five, from the destruction of the afflictions resulting from karmic actions, there is liberation from rebirth. The afflictions arise from thoughts that make distinctions between entities. Sounds like he's asserting that there's liberation from rebirth. The afflictions arise from thoughts that make distinctions. These thoughts come from projecting distinctions onto reality, but such conceptual projections cease through, i.e., presumably understanding emptiness. The idea there is a self has been disclosed, that there is no self has been taught. But it has been taught by the Buddha, there is neither the self nor indeed what is not the self whatsoever. You can't put anything forward as something demonstrably, intrinsically, truly real or there. When the domain of thought has ceased, then what can be named has ceased, which is the which is the import or the desired conclusion of the, this line of reasoning of you can't say there's a self or no self. When the domain of thought has ceased, then what what can be named has ceased. Named here being the shorthand for all objects, all phenomena. By being named by conceptual designation, the nature of all things is like nirvana, unarisen and unceased. And that's the nature of all things. It's unusual that he tells us what is the nature of all things. So he's telling us the, the ultimate level of reality. The Buddha's progressive teaching is this. Everything is real or everything is not real or everything is both real and not real or everything is neither real nor not real. That's a pretty weird statement. And Jones uh, does not really, let's see. Uh, let's just finish this up. The characteristics, back on page 18 still, the characteristics of what is actually real is this, not dependent upon another. So the characteristics, the properties of what is actually real, he puts forward a, a, a view. 
not dependent upon another, peaceful, free of being projected upon by conceptual projections, free of thoughts that make distinctions, and without multiplicity. Whatever arises dependent upon another thing is not that thing, nor is it different from that thing. Therefore, it is neither annihilated nor eternal, not one, not diverse, not annihilated, not eternal. This is the immortal teaching of the Buddhas, the guides of the world. When the fully enlightened Buddhas no longer appear, and when the disciples have disappeared, the knowledge of the solitary Buddhas will come forth without a teacher. What an odd conclusion, that last line. Saints, you know, talking up, suddenly talking about Shravakas versus Pratyeka Buddhas and Buddhas. Like, where did that come from? Uh, let's see, Jones at the bottom of page 108 says also in note in verse 7 that Nagarjuna speaks of the nature of things as unarisen and unceased, and things here as dharmata, or nature of things as dharmata. Buddhists also use thusness, ta-ta-ta, to how things really are. Thusness, ta-ta-ta, to express how things really are. Some may see this as conventional truths only, but in verses 9 to 11, he gives the defining characteristics in Sanskrit lakshanas of what is ultimately real, tatwa, not dependent upon another, peaceful, free of being projected upon with conceptual projections, free of the conceptualizations of distinct entities and without a multiplicity of real entities, not one, not diverse, not annihilated, not eternal. Verse 10 states the central position, whatever arises dependent upon another thing is not that thing, nor is it completely distinct from that thing. Therefore, it is not a thing that is either annihilated or eternal. Thus, it is part of a continuing, substanceless process. This is describing reality from the highest point of view. Interesting that he, uh, you know, he does what supposedly Nagarjuna never does. He presents a view here. He presents a description of the nature of, the true nature of reality, the ultimate truth. Okay, so that's 18. Let us skip to 24, which is on the Four Noble Truths. I think we all know the Four Noble Truths backward and forward. And I invited people to uh, lead the presentation on Karikas, and Chris chose, was the only one that came forward and chose this one, the Four Noble Truths. So take it away, Chris. Thank you for doing that, by the way. Uh, so this is a very interesting karaka in that it, it um, well, first off, it begins with an objection, uh, which I don't think any of the others have uh, to this point. Um, so that's that's kind of an interesting quality of it. And it begins by talking about this, um, this claim, this charge against Nagarjuna that his theory of emptiness, um, if taken to its conclusion, should negate the very teachings of the Buddha that he professes to uphold. Um, so if all things have no essence, 
then surely the Four Noble Truths must have no essence and the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha must have no essence as well. And how can you profess to be a Buddhist and profess the Buddhist path if you deny these very things? So he then begins his reply by talking about how stupid the person who makes that objection is, (laughs) right? Um, And then introduces the two categories that we talked about earlier. Um, This is verse eight. The Buddhist teachings of the doctrine rest upon the two categories of truths, truth based on worldly conventions and truth from the highest point of view. So we usually gloss those as the relative and ultimate truth. Um, those who do not discern the distinction of these two categories of truths do not discern the profound truth of the teachings of the Buddhas. Without relying upon worldly conventions, the truth from the highest point of view cannot be taught. And without reaching the truth from the highest point of view, nirvana cannot be achieved. So he's kind of introducing um, three things here. First are the, the system of the two truths. And then the second is, you know, worldly conventions and linguistic designation. So there's the, there's dependent origination, which is kind of the way things appear. Uh, there's worldly uh, convention or linguistic designation, which is how we talk about that. Um, and then there is ultimate truth, which is the ontological base or non-base uh, of all of those things. Where, where does he talk about dependent origination? He talks about dependent origination. Has he talked about? I mean, yeah, I guess I guess he hasn't quite specifically quite spelled it out yet. Um, but when he's talking about worldly convention, I take that to be dependent origination. Well, that's his understanding of worldly convention. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't worldly convention true origination? What do you that, mean by that? that? True True origination means things actually arise based upon other things. Like naive realism? Yes. I think basically what he wants to do is take naive realism and empty it out of like the realism (laughs) and just, just like uh, the, the, so, so just to spell out naive realism, it's the view that things are the way they appear. And he wants to keep that quality of, of things appearing uh, without it being ontologically founded. In general, his, his overall modus operandi. I think that's right, yeah. But, but in, the, in this stanza, um, without relying upon worldly convention, the truth from the highest point of view cannot be taught. It, it, and without the, the reaching the highest truth, you can't attain enlightenment. I don't know that he's like doing that there. Isn't he like presenting like a sort of gradual gradual path approach or something? Some sort of uh, progression into the Dharma? What, what are the I, gradual steps that you're, you're suggesting? Re- rely upon worldly conventions. Mm-hmm. And then what's unspoken is analyzing worldly conventions and thereby understanding the truth from the highest point of view cannot be taught, you know, and thereby being able to teach the view from the highest point of view or understand it. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think worldly conventions also is talking about like, like the need to use language and concepts. Yes, Not totally, totally. But, but you know, uh, the Buddha needs to teach confused beings in a language of confusion. It's, yeah, that, that was what I thought this was talking about, totally. Yeah, that? so that, that's kind of why I was uh, referencing uh, linguistic designation. Uh, okay. That's kind of cool. a third thing. Um, I'm not sure it's totally spelled out here. Um, so so he's, th- I really love this stanza, um, 11. Seeing emptiness incorrectly destroys a person of little importance. <laughs> just as a snake incorrectly grasped or a spell incorrectly cast. <laughs> Which, I mean, just to, as an aside, it's, like, it's really interesting to hear Nagarjuna talk about the, the efficacy of magic. Uh, in the middle of this, like, like he seems to be implying that that magic is efficacious, and if you if you cast a spell wrong, you're gonna mess up. Yeah, it was taken for granted in those yeah, days. Yeah, yeah, magicians in, were 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 common phenomena. Right. Um, so yeah, he's now insulting the person who makes this claim. Um, do you think he? Do you think he like uh, has a style of uh, intimidation? Uh, Those of little intelligence. And... I suppose if he was like talking to a real person, I, I might think so. But it's like you know, he's just like making up these people to argue with and then being very mean to them. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a funny way to entertain yourself. <laughs> uh, uh, that's when the Buddha considered how difficult it would be for those of little intelligence to comprehend the doctrine. His mind turned away from teaching. In What's addition, that talking about? Is I think this is talking about like right after the Buddha achieves enlightenment, and he's like, "Oh God, what am I going to do? These people won't ever understand us." Yeah, I thought that was a fascinating little reference. It's just it's like a little throwaway there, but it's it it does bring out that whole story. Yeah, you know, here and there, Nagarjuna kind of reminds you he's a Buddhist and not just some sort of like obtuse logician. Yeah, yeah. Every once in a while, he chimes in with these very clear references to the tradition. Yeah. It's cool. Uh, In addition, the error accompanying the objection to emptiness that you make is not ours, meaning the Madhyamakans. It is not applicable to what is empty. For whom emptiness is admissible, everything is admissible. For whom emptiness is inadmissible, everything is inadmissible. So that's that's basically saying that if things are empty, they can be efficacious. But if things have swabhava, uh, essence, you know, an inherent nature, they can't do anything because they can't change. They can't be causes. They can't be effects. They can't persist over time. It's uh, he's what he's what he's doing, and will spell out more gradually um, later in this karika is is basically turning the objection, the objector on their head uh, by saying the things you are ascribing to my argument are in fact the symptoms of your own argument. Um, uh, 15, uh, in attributing your errors to us, you have forgotten the horse you are mounted on. So this is a, an Indian trope of um, someone accuses you of having stolen his horses and he's, he's riding around and showing you all of his stable and all the horses. And he's like, look, and one's missing. And then you say, well, you've forgotten the horse that you're riding on. Um, so this is, this is just another way of Nagarjuna saying, uh, be aware of the uh, 
commitments your own arguments make. And be, again, because they apply to you, not me. Um, and then I think I, I'm pretty sure this, these next verses is what Jay Garfield call, calls like the philosophical core of the entire Karaka. Um, if you perceive, I should probably double check that citation before I make it. <laughs> if you perceive entities <laughs> as having being, as, if you perceive entities of having true being because of their self-existence, then you will perceive entities as being without causes and conditions. You will also reject effect, cause, actor, and means of acting, action, arising, ceasing, and fruit. Actually, that's, that's sorry, that's not the philosophical core. Um, this is the philosophical core, 18. Here we go. Whatever is dependently arisen, we call emptiness. Once comprehended, this indicator is in fact itself the middle way between eternalism and annihilationism. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, that's like the theme of the whole text, the Karikas. Yeah, that's, that's, it. It, that's it right there. Famous, is, which, is, which is that... Uh, emptiness and dependent origination are two ways of talking about the same. Excuse me. Are two ways. Of, two ways of talking about the same thing. There's your way and your dog's way. Yeah, yeah, but we're actually just talking <laughs> at the same time. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can I? I have a question. I want to jump in with here. So something I was confused about on page 19, which is in Karika 20 halfway down is the statement if something is empty it will be unceasing and unarisen and then over here we're saying whatever is dependently arisen we call emptiness so what's the verse number on sorry okay the first one is in verse 17 within karika 20 the last line of it says, if something is empty, it will be unceasing and unarisen. Which caught my attention. Um, and then back over where we just were in verse 18 of Karika 24, it's saying whatever is dependently arisen, we call emptiness. So... But doesn't 17 say a non-empty effect of my words and being non-empty, it would not cease? Yes, this is part of why I was so confused by... So, so that's, the that that's, a, that's like a, um, a, a full entity, an entity we, with Svobhava, rather than an empty entity, he's describing in 17. Say that again? He's saying, uh, uh, 17 says, a non-empty effect, i.e. an effect that's truly existent, does not arise. Right. And, and being really existent or have sw- having swabhava it would therefore not cease it would be unceasing because sw- things with swabhava can never cease and it would not it would be unarisen because uh things with swabhava are not ever produced they're primordially yeah they're primordially right. existing no the next verse 18 right so oh okay something well, is empty Oh, yes. Sorry. Sorry. Empty. You're right. I skipped it. Yes. I had the wrong number in 18. Right. Then he, so right. 17, I was fine with, but then he goes on to say, how, 
how will the empty arise and how will it cease? If something is empty, it will be unceasing and unarisen. And I have a big note that says, wait, what? With three question marks after it. So, so there he's, he's, he's doing this thing that he did early on in the motion and in many, many other places where he, he takes like the opposite and um, whereas you would think the opposite of what he just showed to be untrue by false, by having fr frozen things as existing truly. So you would think, well, then the opposite would sort of make sense. And he says, well, if you think the opposite makes sense, it, it actually doesn't because you're making the opposite, opposite into something substantially existent. So you're saying there's a substantially existent emptiness. Right. If something is actually empty, it also will be unarisen because it's, it's uh, truly existent and unceasing because it's truly existent. existent. Yeah, I think you have to read both sentences or all three sentences in 18 together. The last sentence is just a, a refutation of what he's questioning. A non-empty effect does not arise. How? Yeah. So, so I, I think what Kevin is pointing out, which is helpful, is seventeen and eighteen are sort of each have like three parts, and each part corresponds. So. In 17, a non-empty effect does not arise. In 18, how will the empty, how will something that's empty arise? Um, uh, it, it, it's truly not empty, so how can it arise? It's a non-empty effect does not arise. How will the empty arise? Um, non-empty effect does not arise meaning uh, something that's full does not arise. How will something empty ever arise? Um, if something's empty, how can it ever arise? Being non, going back to 17, being non-empty, it would not cease because it's truly existent. Uh, going to 18, how will it cease? If, if it's if it's uh, empty, then if it's truly empty, then it, it, it's it, it's it exists as emptiness. And how can that ever stop being emptiness? You know, basically, he he uses one logic in the beginning of. Uh, I don't know whether it's the excluded middle or the non-contradiction, um, but he's in the beginning in 17, he's saying um, something truly existent can't ever arise or cease or function. Right. And um, if you think that something that's the opposite, i.e. emptiness exists, how can it it, it, it's just another example of something that's truly existent. 
So, question is... It's an empty phenomena. In, in, I mean, in a sense, they're, they're basically saying no matter what, nothing can arise or cease. Whether you think of it as empty or whether you think of it as non-empty, in neither case does arising and ceasing make sense. But then why do they use the term dependent arising? Is it right. just a linguistic problem that they haven't come up with a better way to say that? Right. That's I'm okay with 17 and 18 as a logical connection within right. Karka 20, but then jumping to Karka 24 verse 18 to say whatever is dependently arisen, we call emptiness. I mean, maybe the term we call, maybe that's the linchpin here. D dependent arising reminds you that if you then try to analyze it, like dependent arising is what's is what we're is what's walking on that razor blade. Yeah. So right. if you look at it and you analyze it, you don't find anything arising. Right. Dependently arising and arising. But are opposites. Are, 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 right. Okay. Those are uh, opposites. Right. You got to remember that. Okay. So throughout, he's like using the conventional language of arising and saying there's no arising. There's no. Right. Uh, the word real is like understood or assumed when he when he just says arising he means there's no real arising right and so then he says there's dependent arising that's the only way anything functions yes sorry isn't there something called like the middle level of analysis sometimes i feel like dependent arising is there in the middle like it's not taking things at face value you're like oh they're all dependent yeah. upon each other but then if you look at it further you'll find there's no arising at all. Like, I feel it's like right there in the middle, which is yeah. why it's in the middle of the three natures. It's almost some kind of like middle way. Well, yeah, but it's also a conceptual middle stepping stone. And the, and the door in the middle. <laughs> the idea of there being like some place in between two things that don't, you know, have any reality is a conceptual projection. But um, your 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 statement about uh, the link with the three natures, I think, is really interesting. Is that the three natures? I, the, like the more I read about Nagarjuna and Madhyamaka, the more the three natures becomes a really helpful gloss on the the two truths. The two truths becomes like two um, almost black and white, or or not like uh, doesn't explain as much. So that's interesting. Dependent arising is the uh, the second of the two, three natures, rather. Sorry. I'd like to say that I'd like to say reading Nagarjuna for the first time, what it made me appreciate was how the three natures came about. I was like, oh, this is the three natures is going to simplify all this jumping back and forth between the two truths. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And then, and then. Um, what the Madhyamakas say is that the Chittamatrans don't understand the three natures correctly. They've, they've posited this middle nature, the dependent nature, but they sort of believe in it. Well, you know, I'm so sure they, I don't understand it correctly. <laughs> so they've sort of taken dependent arising and made it into a thing. But again, that's a straw man thing, right? He's, he's attributing that to them. They don't necessarily say that. Some of them do, you know. Um, some of them do. There's, there's the early 
so-called Shifta Mantras, the Sangha and Vasubandhu, who don't actually specifically say it, but it, it supposedly later ones sort of misunderstand them and become sort of substantial exist, substantialists about the uh, uh, the middle of the three natures as well as the third of the three natures that the fully perfected nature of <clears throat> the nature of mind has it's has some type of true existence but anyway we uh, diverge from the four noble truths chris was on a big roll here i think he had just pretty much nailed number 18 uh shloka 18 Okay, so 19. Uh, a basic phenomena, i.e. Any ultimate, any ultimate factor of the experienced world that is not dependently arisen is not seen. So any, this is, this is a denial of fundamental dharmas, right? Everything that arises is uh, dependently arisen and not uh, self-arisen. Thus, a thing that is not empty is not seen. If you say, if as you say, everything were not empty, then there would be neither arising nor ceasing, and the non-existence of the four noble truths would follow. So this is him now turning the, uh, the opponent's argument on its head. Um, how would suffering come to be? And, and then he's going to, uh, for the next verses, kind of go through the noble truths one at a time. So noble truth number one, how could suffering come to be if it is not dependently arisen? That is to say that suffering is impermanent. Indeed, it is not it is not seen in what is self-existence. In addition, if something exists by self-existence, how could it come to be? For one who rejects emptiness, there can be no coming to be. Thus, there can be no cessation of suffering that exists through self-existence. You deny cessation by being obsessed with self-existence. And then closing it out with number four, if the path were self-existent, the cultivation of the path could not occur. But since the path is, in fact, cultivated, self-existence is not seen in it. If no suffering arising and ceasing are seen, what path for the cessation of suffering could there be? And then he's going to go on to talk about... It's, it, it's interesting that he sort of gives two reasons for uh, the path, for the incorrect view of the path. If the path were self-existent, you couldn't cultivate it. But, but since the path is cultivated, uh, sorry, uh, that's that's all one sort of reason. And then if, and then he goes back to, and then he uses the other um, idea is that if there's no suffering and cessation, then there's no path. You know, it's sort of like one is the ultimate. Um, um, denial of the reality of a self-existent path, and the other is just sort of on a on a very conventional level. If there's if there's nothing to pass, then there's no path. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you again. Uh, Twenty-six. If non-arising exists by self-existence, how could understanding ever arise? is not self-existence fixed. Like understanding, elimination, realization, and meditative developments are not possible. Sorry, got a dog moving on top of me. It's, it's raining here, which it does very rarely, so she's very frightened right now. 
Uh, <laughs> um, Timing is everything, huh? You yeah. need that thunder shirt for that. Right. Um, I'm just going to pick up at 28 because that feels like where I was. For one who accepts self-existence, how is it possible to obtain a fruit that is not already obtained through self-existence? Uh, if, if substance, if, if ultimate uh, self-nature can't change, how could, how could the path be possible? How could, how could you obtain the fruits of the path that you, if, if the diagnosis of Buddhism is that you are confused and need to move into wisdom, uh, how could you gain wisdom if you didn't already have it? Um, and if, if, if defilements were real, how could you get rid of them? How could you get rid of them? Yeah, and the same in the inverse. In the absence of the fruits, there are none who have obtained the fruits, nor any who have entered the way of attaining them. If these eight types of people do not exist, there is no community of monks and nuns. And the eight, the eight types of people refers to there's this traditional way of classifying the Sangha as being of eight different types and there's monks and nuns of four different stages of um, monkness and nunness a beginner and so forth sorry so he's, he's talking about the sangha right how could there be a sangha right right now uh, if these things were ultimately existent the, uh, those are the stages of attainment of the paths so there, there could be no community of people who have attained fruition, the fruits. Sorry. Because of the non-existence of the Four Noble Truths, the true doctrine is also not seen. And if there is no religious doctrine or religious community, how could a Buddha arise? So he's talking about the three jewels, right? Buddha, Sangha, Buddha, Sangha, Dharma, and Buddha. In that order. Uh, if it follows for you that an enlightened one is not dependent upon enlightened, Enlightenment, it follows for you that enlightenment is not dependent upon the enlightened. For you, one who is by his self-existent nature is unenlightened would not attain enlightenment, even while striving towards enlightenment by leading the life of, of a bodhisattva. This is interesting because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the only use of like Mahayana terminology we've seen so far. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I, course, I was surprised to see it. Of course, bodhisattva exists as a term uh, in the early Buddhist schools, but not as a lifestyle that um, an aspirant treads upon. Yeah, to, for him to say, even while striving towards enlightenment by leading the way of life of a bodhisattva, implying that uh, there could be multiple people doing that. Right. Which was not the view of the early tradition. And no one will ever perform correct or incorrect actions. What can, be, what can be done to what is not empty, since what is self-existence cannot be affected by action. Indeed, for you, karmic fruit is found without any correct or incorrect action. Conversely, the fruit of correct and incorrect actions is not found. Or if for you there is the fruit of correct and incorrect actions, how can this fruit be non-empty, since it has arisen from correct and incorrect actions? How can anything with swabhava arise from something else, uh, correct or incorrect action. 36, you reject all worldly conventions since you reject the emptiness of dependent arising. For one who rejects emptiness, there would be nothing whatsoever that could be done. 
There would be no uninitiated actions. There could, would be no actor with no action. The world would then be unarisen, unceased, and immutable, since it would be devoid of varying conditions in its self-existent state. If the world is not empty, there is no attaining what has not already been attained. The act of ending suffering and eliminating the afflictions would not be found. But whoever sees dependent arising sees this and also sees suffering, its arising, its cessation, and the path leading to its cessation. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. So let's take a quick look at 26, which is on page 28, the root verses. The 12 steps of the AA, uh, no, of the cycle of rebirth. So this is a, uh, apparently a very traditional presentation of the 12 Madonnas. And, uh, well, let's, let's go through it and then we'll go through his commentary briefly. Shrouded in root ignorance, as opposed to ordinary ignorance. Root ignorance, a person forms the dispositions through thought, word, and deed. Where did the person come from, by the way? I found that on By the actions based on these dispositions, one goes on to a new state for repeated rebirths. With the dispositions as its condition, consciousness enters a new state of rebirth. So sometimes when these are explained, there's this idea of the 12 mapping over three lifetimes, and this would have been the the, uh, beginning and end of the first lifetime. Is dispositions gotras here, do you think? No, it's samskaras. Okay member of the 12-fold Madonna's samskaras. Uh, With consciousness having entered the new state, a psychophysical body, i.e. name and form, which is the next member of the Madonna's, arises infused with that consciousness. With the body, it thus infused the domains of the six senses, which is the next member of the 12, arise the six domains having appeared so interesting whether it's nagarjuna or the translator i'm not quite sure but he's saying the domains of the six senses Uh, when we see the list of the 12 nadanas we see the six senses is the entry for this member of the nadanas not the domains the domains implies the combination between the senses or, or the, uh, the domain implies including both the senses and their objects, the domains of the six senses, the visible, the hearable, and so forth. The six domains having appeared, contact comes into being. So uh, with, with the six domains, and the sixth sense consciousness uh, faculties, then, con- um, and, or, and the six consciousnesses, i.e., the 18 dhatus, then we have contact comes into being between faculty, object, and uh, it's questionable whether uh, faculty and object results in consciousness or not. But anyway, we have contact arising. This 
Uh, let's see. Consciousness. Just a note in the, in the, uh, yeah. in the Garfield, that third one refers to the six sense spheres. Fears? And you were talking about domains. Fields. Fields. Fields, no? Well, Fields. In, fears, I'm looking at fears. the Gar. I'm sorry. I'm looking at the Garfield one, and yeah. it says six sense spheres come into being. Fears. Spheres. 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 I'm sorry. Spheres. S p h e r e s. Thank you. Sorry. And then in the one, you're on five. Then. Yeah. What is assembled from the three eye and form and consciousness is contact. Just in terms of another alternative. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Thus, consciousness develops depending upon sensing, form, sensing, and form coming together. The consciousness develops depending upon sensing, form, sensing, and form coming together. The two separately and then together. And the body? It's a little bit confusing. Contact is the conjunction of three things. Sensing, the sense faculty, the object, and consciousness gives rise to contact. From such contact, sensation arises, or we would maybe say perception arises. Craving has sensation. Oh, sorry, not, not perception. Feeling, right? Sensation, i.e. feeling arises from contact, one of the three types of feelings, positive, negative, neutral. Craving has feeling or sensation as its condition, since the object of sensation is craved for. When there's craving, clinging to the four domains of clinging, and it's interesting to see a list of the four domains of clinging, desires, views, rules, and a sense of self. <laughs> clinging to rules. <laughs> um, arise. When clinging exists, the rebirth, i.e. becoming of the one who clings, develops the Klingons. For if one were without clinging, one would be released and there would be no more becoming. The five bodily aggregates are the new becoming. From this becoming birth develops, aging, death, suffering, and so forth develop from birth, as do grief, lamentation, dejection, and despair, such as the arising of the complete aggregate of suffering. So briefly looking at the commentary on this, on page uh, 20, sorry, 117. This chapter is out of character with the rest of the Mulamanyamaka Karika's MK. It's a straight exposition of the 12 step dependent arising of rebirth that is standard to all of Buddhism, with no analysis of it in terms of emptiness. You know, so it's rare that he like just goes on this description of something without constantly poking holes in it. This leads some to doubt that this chapter and the next were originally part of the MK and were written by somebody else. Oh. Some scholars also doubt that the Buddha ever taught the full 12-step cycle. Rather, they argue that he taught various steps, and later Buddhists assembled them, assembled them rather, into one series. 
The Garjana does give an analysis of the fundamental role of root ignorance in this process. If this hypothesis is true, then the original ending of the MK is the dramatic declaration of 25.24. So he's saying if these two chapters are spurious, then the end of the Mulabhanyamaka Karakas is, um, is the end of, of uh, Karaka 25 the stilling of all conceptual support and the stilling of the projection of concepts onto reality. So I'm on, that's on page 28, is peace. No doctrine was taught by the Buddha in any place to anyone, that famous phrase. Uh, but perhaps this chapter is genuine and the reason the Garshana did not supply an analysis is because he equates emptiness with dependent arising. There is no denial of this type of arising here in any of his works. There are two possible explanations for this. <coughs> First, he does not affirm a real entity called arising. Second, calling the process dependent arising may only be a conventional truth. Seeing the situation from the ultimate point of view would not involve seeing the process in terms of any real entities. Depending on the rising, starts with root ignorance, avidya. Such ignorance is not merely not knowing, but believing the world is populated with discrete, independently real things, and so on. Let's see. So it's not merely not knowing the truth of impermanence, but seeing the world in terms of discrete things. It's constantly seeing things incorrectly. Not merely the absence of knowing the truth, but an active error that's constantly happening is this root ignorance that shrouds the truth, affects all of our experience and, and uh, perceptions and so forth, producing a distortion. The distinction in chapter 1, verse 2, between causes and conditions is important for the concept of dependent arising. Dependent arising is about the necessary conditions for a process and how to remove a condition so that the cycle does not continue. I thought his explanation of dependent arising here was, was helpful. The difference is not merely semantic. Causes can be seen as all the necessary conditions coming together, but dependent arising only delineates one necessary condition in each step. <clears throat> Thus, if the root ignorance were the cause of desires rather than A or one condition, then once it arose, desires would have to arise. If it were the cause, a determinate chain would begin with no way to break it. Thus, once we are unenlightened, we would remain unenlightened forever. Given that that unenlightened, that avidya exists, it would necessarily produce the next step and so on and so forth. But that's not the idea with the notion of dependent arising or the nadanas. Under dependent arising, once avidya, the first one arises, desires are not automatically caused. That is, our root ignorance does not cause desires, but it is a condition for desires. Thus, by removing this ignorance, not desires cannot arise so it's not uh, it, it's it does not necessarily give rise to desire but in its absence there is no arising of desire which is the idea with conditions this is not an instance of efficient causes as in science where everything's very linear 
and to approach the interconnectedness and conditionality of all phenomena with a prior mindset in terms of scientific causation is to set off on the wrong track. I thought that was helpful. A lot of us, I think, myself included, a lot of us in the West look at uh, causation as like a um, a one-to-one uh, necessary unavoidable chain of events as in scientific analysis of cause and effect. Is Sophia that looks uh, troubled? No, no, I want I just was wondering whether that is sort of the essential point in when they were in the rice seedling sutra and when the misunderstanding of it where people sort of misread it and turn it into more linear causality. I think so. I think that's the whole idea that so uh, it's subtle, but Cynthia is uh, referring to this famous sutra called the rice seedling, where he uses this analogy of uh, rice arising from a seedling, given the other supporting conditions of water and warmth and so forth, um, and distinguishing between the saying, "If there is ignorance, then there will be desire." And saying, when there is ignorance, then there can be desire, can arise. So it's, it's not that the first member or, or one member of the chain automatically results in the next member of the chain. But given the presence of the first member of the chain, then the next member can arise. And without that presence of the first member or the prior member, the next member cannot arise which is subtle but huge difference in the understanding of it. So he says the focus should remain on our inner life and how to end suffering through removing our act of misapprehension of reality or vidya, not in anything like the efficient causal course of inanimate objects in science. So... Let's see, verse 6 and 7 concern the Klingons or the grasping that leads to the acquiring of a new birth. The same word, Upadana, refers to both grasping and a new becoming. Interesting. Okay. Anyway, so let's pause there and um, let's continue on. Next next week we have, we forage into this text called the uh, <coughs> Over. Over, let's see, he translates it as overturning the objections, vigraha viavartini. And then um, I'll try to fit in somewhere soon, uh, like drilling into one of these karikas and, and see if I can provide the commentaries by Bhava Viveka and Buddhapalata and Chandrakirti, sort of for fun. And uh, it may also be helpful to revert back to one or more of his essays at the back that we skipped when we diverged into that uh, presentation on Swabhava by Jan or Jan Westerhoff, which was so good. Uh, but anyway, let's stick with the, the current plan for next week, the Vigraha Vyavartini. Any comments, suggestions, questions, thoughts, aspirations, hopes, fears? Chris? I, this is like totally unrelated to anything we talked about tonight. So it's just something that's been kicking around my head all week. Um, as it really, because we didn't really talk about this, like, like Nagarjuna being this like nuisance to the Abhidharmists and, you know, picking fights that they didn't want to be in with them. And, you know, I was, 
just thinking about the general Indian philosophical and religious context that Buddhists found themselves in. And it's like, the Buddhists were kind of like the, the bad boys, you know, with like, like starting trouble since way back, you know, this is a, this is a, a school of nonconformists and like people who rejected the radical, radically rejected the premise of like everything that Indian religion and philosophical movements were based on. So it's like in that tradition of, you know, going against the grain that Nagarjuna comes out, it's not just like, you know, these like, you know, kind and agreeable Buddhists were going about their business. And then all of a sudden comes this like spoil sport. That, that's a really good point. That, that, that uh, idea that Nagarjuna like comes out of nowhere as uh, the bad boy is sort of what's presented in many places. And that, you know, up until that time, Buddhists were, you know, just part of the fold of Indian religion. And as Chris is pointing out, Buddhists from the time of the Buddha were radicals in many ways, in particular by going against the caste system, really fundamental uh, um, uh, rejection of the general Indian system at that time, as well as negating an Atman, negating the Atman. That was like taken for granted in the in the Upanishads and the Vedas as the not only taken for granted, but like the core of the, the core. <laughs> religious project is like it's like what is Atman and like subtler and more refined notions of it and you know these fast collections of dialogues, you know, between kings and gods and Brahmins about what is the self. And Buddha's just like threw all of that out, which had been, you know, determined you know, to be like the source material of the universe. Yeah, really pulling the rug out, huh? Yeah. The other thing that uh, you reminded me of briefly is that uh, Nagarjuna's writing is just so unique and so different from, I believe, all other Buddhist texts that were be being composed at the time, which I think were basically exclusively uh, very didactic, pedantic, um, long, boring uh, word commentaries on sutras and um, on the Abhidharma texts and distillations of the seven Abhidharma texts into compendiums such as we see in Vasubandhu's Treasury of Abhidharma a few centuries later, but there's a number of texts that precede him that basically the same thing they go through. And one of the seven Abhidharma texts in the Theravada tradition has the same like table of contents. I've been trying to get around to to showing this. It's, it's quite interesting to see like from the earliest times, there's like this list of topics and that's sort of what Nagarjuna is going through. This list of topics of the aggregates, the datus, the ayatanas, the faculties, the true and untrue, cause and effect, you know, these major topics of, you know, if you were to explain what Buddhism is, you would go through these things and, and explain them. And they did that ad nauseum in this very um, excruciatingly boring way. And he just comes in and just like, flippantly like just makes mince to me so to speak of the whole thing just like turns it all around their heads must have been spinning you know but 
he did say in, in I can't remember if it was the one I just read or Chris read, he said, of our understanding or our our way of viewing things, implying that it was more than just him. <laughs> that there were more of him at the time. Anyway. Maybe he's trying to be persuasive. <laughs> like you're you're on my side, right? You know, we yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean that's Walser's this guy, Joseph Walser, that's his whole argument is thinking he was trying to persuade certain schools to it's very very political it's almost like you know uh someone from the working families party going to the democrats and saying we agree on a lot let's team up and you know against what those guys are saying it's so yeah i, I if walser's correct and his research seems very strong like it seems like there were a few groups that nagarjuna was trying to kind of bring on board um That's yeah, so including interesting. the the Pugdalavans, I yeah. find that and very it, well, hard to believe. You'll see when you read, you know, what he says about them. That it's not that he agreed; it's that he saw merit in some of their views, and he was trying to enhance their understanding of those things to be more what he was trying to say. So he's sort of like, "You guys are close on some of these things, but think about it this way." That's kind of yeah. sounds like more what I see. Yeah, that that yeah. makes sense in some way. He was this encouraging or uh, of the same mind as groups of people that were like questioning the status quo and trying to look at things in a different way. Yeah, That's that's interesting. And then also like uh, trying to pit groups against each other. Yes, yeah. I I have to admit, I I read only just a little part of that article, not the whole thing, but I was struck by that whole, as you say, political aspect because I tend to think of Nagarjuna as being like the purest and when I saw this and I was like, oh, wow, that it would kind of like was sort of a shocking um, idea that he could be this, you know, perhaps philosophical purist, but he could be, you know, into the dirty politics of, oh, let's manipulate how people think about this stuff. That was I, such a funny view that like he's like pandering to them early on in the yeah. car because there's one Karka where he goes through like this the standard list of the some from the Vinia of things that comes right from some other schools texts books and you know so trying to like win win them over to to try to then get them to disagree with others. I mean, I'm sure one could put a positive spin on it, but I, I, my first reaction was like, yikes, you know, nasty politics. <laughs> well, and apparently the one we're about to read for next week, he's addressing a different set of things that's subtly different, and it's closer to the schools that were located where he was when he wrote it, as, as far as they can tell. So, yeah, it's sort of like wherever he was staying, he was sort of trying to be like, okay, guys. He's like staying because if you think about it, I mean, he's living at these monasteries. He's he he's he's trying to like convince people. I think it makes sense. Like, yeah, he probably was not alone in doing this. There must have been others yeah. that were like going around and trying to like rally people to their view. I, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but interesting. Well, let's do our uh, dedication.
and close by this merit may all obtain omniscience may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth old age sickness and death from the ocean of samsara may i free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east may the lotus garden of the rigdon's wisdom bloom may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled may all beings enjoy profound brilliant glory Thank you, everyone, especially Chris, for, for undertaking that. And, I hope uh, the little doggy there has, gets, feels better with the storm. He's a very good dedication uh, prayer. I like your, <laughs> I loved your little uh, effects there. I'm just really working on her next re rebirth. Getting her in good habits, huh? Yeah, maybe, maybe somewhere where even less rain. <laughs> Thank yes, you, everyone. Uh, Great to see you. Uh, see you all next week. Take Bye -bye. care. Bye.